God, thank you so much for uh, just loving us. Thank you for the freedom that we have, uh, all of us today. We got to wake up and decide to come to church. Uh, there's no oppression. There's no fear of uh, retaliation for being Christ followers, for choosing to worship. Uh, it, it's a privilege that we have. And I just thank you so much for the great honor of living in a land that's free. And I just pray that we'll never take for granted the blessings that we have to be able to worship freely. And right now we pause as we get ready to, to do the sermon part of our, our service and, and look at Joseph and his life, the conclusion of this narrative. I just pray that you be with Peggy from our staff as she has surgery on Tuesday. I pray the surgery is 100% successful. There's no complications. She has a speedy and quick recovery. I also pray that you be with our friend Keith, the preacher out at Lane. We don't know a lot of details, but we know that um, he needs prayer, and we're praying for him. We're praying that you would restore him to good health and that he'd be able to get back to ministry, to making a difference in your name. I pray for the entire church at Lane this morning and just pray that you bless them, calm any fears that they might have, and that they'll be able to minister to Keith and his family during this time. We love you, and we thank you most of all today for Jesus, your son, the difference that he makes. It's an incredible difference, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis, the first book in the Bible. We're going to be looking at chapters 42 to 50. Now, don't get worried, okay? So some of you are thinking, how can we get through nine chapters of the Bible this morning? Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. But what has happened, if you're new with us this week, or maybe you've missed the last couple of weeks, we're in the midst of a four-week series. This is part four of four, looking at the life of Joseph, from the book of Genesis. Week one, the big idea, the title was abandoned. And it was Genesis 37. It was the story of Joseph, the 11th of 12 sons of Jacob, being sold into slavery, beaten up by his brothers, thrown into a cistern, left for dead, sold into slavery. And the lesson that we learned in chapter 37 is that integrity is always the right answer. And God is always in control. Week two, we looked at Genesis 39. It was the, the, the incident where Joseph rose up while in slavery, became the household attendant for a very powerful man by the name of Potiphar. God blessed him. Great things happened. Potiphar's wife, however, had evil intent. She wanted to be with Joseph in the biblical sense of being with someone. And day after day said, come and be with me. And Joseph resisted the temptation. He passed the test, but he paid a price anyway. And the lesson that we took away from that is sometimes we do the right thing and we pay a price anyway, but God is still in control. Week three, last week, it was the story of Joseph in prison. It was a depressing time. He was in prison unjustly. He didn't deserve it. He had an opportunity to get out, but the cupbearer forgot about him. And finally, when he had his moment to shine, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, couldn't figure out some dreams that he was having. The cupbearer remembered Joseph. He said, go get the prisoner, bring him to me. And Joseph, standing before the Pharaoh, standing before the king of Egypt, the king said, can you help me? And Joseph said, according to the message paraphrase, not I, but God. And I made you repeat that last week. We did that little kindergarten-like exercise where we said together, not I, but God. Because for some of us, that's right where we need to be with our life. That's what we need to hear right now where we're at is I can't do it, but God, you can. So I'm going to back off and let you do your thing. Not I, 
but God. When we left last week, Joseph had ascended to the second highest position in Egypt. He was governor. He was in charge of all the grain. God had blessed him incredibly. He had went from the pit. He would went from prison to a position of incredible prominence. And that's where we pick up our account today in Genesis chapter 42. If you have your Bibles, you're going to want to float with me in Genesis 42, 43, 44, and 45. Well, we said last week that Joseph had this great vision. God helped him interpret Pharaoh's dream. There was going to be seven years of incredible crops. They called it the seven years of abundance. And they were going to be followed by seven years of famine. No one could grow anything. So Joseph had this great idea. Here's what we'll do during the seven years of abundance. We're going to set aside 20%, one-fifth of all the crops that come in, the bumper crops that come in. And then when the famine hits, we're going to be sitting pretty and the rest of the world's going to be in trouble and that's exactly how it played out and we're reintroduced in chapter 42 to Jacob and his 11 remaining sons they're in the midst of this famine there's no food anywhere except where Egypt so in Genesis 42 to 44 we see this big idea right here Joseph is going to control a series of events to put himself in position for the ultimate revenge on those who truly wronged him. Do you see the, do you see the beauty in it? They sold him into slavery because they didn't like the fact that he could interpret dreams. The brothers didn't like the fact that he said, someday you're going to bow down and worship me. That, that's going to come true, by the way. And now life is so extreme. Food is nowhere to be found that Jacob gathers the ten oldest sons and says, go to Egypt, get us food. Joseph's in a position for an extreme revenge, an ultimate revenge. You know, there's something about revenge. Don't we like revenge, if we were really being honest? When we read a story and somebody is wronged and the tables turn and something bad happens to them, isn't there a little bit of us that maybe we smile on the inside? We're excited that things are getting evened out in many ways. I, I read a story this week. It's a story of a man that no one in first service had heard of. At least nobody raised their hand. Anybody heard of Norman Cousins? Anybody know Norman Cousins? Okay, this is not hitting the home run that I was hoping that it would hit. But Norman Cousins tells a story of being on a trip. He's at an airport in Los Angeles, and he needs to make a telephone call. And this is before the days of the cell phone. And young people, listen up. We used to have these things in America called payphones. And what would happen is that you would take a quarter and you would put it in a machine and then you could make a call. It's called a pay phone. And Norman Cousins is at a pay phone. He's got one quarter left. He puts the quarter in the machine. He dials the number. Something goes wrong. The machine eats his quarter. He can't make his call. So he pushes zero. He gets the operator. He explains his predicament and he says, can you refund my money? I need to make a call. And she says, no, I'm not going to be able to do that, but if you'll give me your name and your address, I can mail you your 25 cents back. Very frustrated. He doesn't want a quarter mailed to him. He just wants to make a call. So in frustration, there was this little thing on the payphone, stick with me, young people, and you would push the coin return and your quarter would come back. 
Well, he pushes the coin return. Well, let me, let me read his own words for you this morning. He says, at that point, all the innards of the machine opened up and quarters and dimes and nickels tumbled out in magnificent and overflowing profusion. Operator, he said, are you still there? Yes, she replied. He said, something quite remarkable has happened. All I did was press the coin return lever, and the machine is giving me all of its earnings. There must be several dollars in coins in here, and the flow still hasn't stopped. Sir, said the operator, will you please just put the money back into the box? Operator, Cousins replied, if you give me your name and your address, I'd be happy to mail the money back to you. Poetic justice, maybe? We, we like when that happens, don't we? We like when someone who has been wronged gets it reversed. And the person that wronged someone pays a price. We call that revenge. Maybe we call that justice. Maybe we call that the way the story should end. Well, Joseph has played the situation out perfectly. And in the first five verses of Genesis 42, the ten oldest sons of Jacob have made their way to Egypt, and they find themselves standing in front of their brother Joseph. But guess what happens? Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize their brother Joseph that they sold into slavery. And the rest of chapter 42 is a series of events that, that Joseph plays. He accuses them of being spies. He says, I know you're here to spy on me. They say, no, no, we're not. They're afraid they're going to be arrested. He says, tell me all about your story. Tell me all about your life. They say, we're 10 sons of 12. One brother is gone. The baby brother's back home. Our father is old. He's not in great health. We don't want food. We need help. We've brought silver to buy grain. Joseph says, I don't believe you. So what I'm going to do is this. You are to go home, you are to get your baby brother, you are to bring him back to Egypt. While you do that, I'm going to detain one of your brothers, Simeon. He's going to have to stay here with me, and I will send you on your way. Joseph, in setting this up perfectly so he can get his revenge, he not only loads each one with a sack full of grain, he takes the money, the silver that they brought, and he has the silver put in their sacks. So that as they begin their journey back to the homeland and they stop for the night, they open up their sacks. Not only is there grain, the money is there. My guess is their hearts were thumping. What are we going to do? Joseph's gone. Now Simeon's been held captive. We're going home with grain. The money is here as well. It must be some sort of mistake. We're going to be accused of theft. It looks like an awful, awful situation. Well, chapter 43 is the, the brothers begging their father, Jacob, let us go back for a second time and let us take baby brother Benjamin with us. See, Jacob had a special place in his heart for Joseph, we know that, but he also had a special place in his heart for Benjamin, the youngest. Joseph and Benjamin had the same mother. Anybody remember who that was? Rachel. Jacob had an incredible passion for, for Rachel. She died in childbirth, and he was never the same after that. Joseph's gone. There's no way he's going to let baby brother Benjamin go. But after a series of conversations, the older brothers absolutely begging, finally Jacob relents and says, you can take Benjamin, but you better 
bring him back. Judah puts his name on the line and says, if Benjamin doesn't come back, you can take my sons and put them to death. Judah puts his name on the line. And so a second journey commences. And the ten remaining brothers, including baby brother Benjamin, head back to Egypt. They're a little afraid. Are they going to be accused of theft? What's going to happen? Joseph greets them once again. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. He perpetrates the same kind of, I guess we could call it a fraud, where he loads their bags up with grain once again. This time their money is put in the bags once again. But his very special silver cup, the text refers to it as the cup of divination, Joseph's prized possession, Joseph has it placed in baby Benjamin's sack as well. Joseph's setting all of this up. In the morning, they get ready to leave. Joseph calls everyone together. He says, there's been a theft. One of you, you're a thief. Let's check all the sacks. They open up their sacks, and when they opened up Benjamin's sack, there was the silver cup. Benjamin says, or Joseph says, take Benjamin, put him in prison, my prison. The rest of you go on your way. You want to read agony Spend time at the end of Genesis chapter 44 and you will feel the agony of brothers toward their younger brother that's oppressed, Benjamin. Agony at the thought of having to go home and look at their father Jacob. They've already brought so much heartache his way and look at him and say, Dad, we failed. Benjamin's not coming back. At the end of chapter 44, it looks like it's an awful situation for the ten and a beautiful situation for Joseph. Ultimate revenge will be possible. Let's move to chapter 45, Genesis chapter 45. I like to call decision time for Joseph because he is now going to be faced with, do I go for revenge or do I do the unthinkable? Do I forgive? Genesis 45 shows us that Joseph's integrity and trust in God will keep him from exacting revenge. My guess up to this point in time, I'm reading between the lines here, but my guess is up to this point in time, he wasn't quite sure what he was going to do. He had manipulated the situation to a perfect scenario where if he wanted to, revenge would be his. Look, look, at, uh, look at the point of our message today on your handout. Joseph chooses forgiveness, which is going to lead to restoration, instead of revenge, which will further bring division. In verse 4 of Genesis 45, here's what we read. Joseph said to his brothers, he exposes himself, he says, come close to me. I'm your brother Joseph the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. For the next five, there will not be plowing. There will not be reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph chooses forgiveness which will lead toward reconciliation and restoration instead of vengeance which would further bring division 
How did he do that? Did he forget about life in the pit? Did he forget about getting sold into slavery? Did he forget about the unjust way that he was treated by Potiphar and Potiphar's household? Did he forget about the years that he spent in prison? It's not a stretch to say that his young adult years of life were robbed from him. They were taken from him. And he's finally in the power position and he can get even. And he chooses forgiveness? Really? Forgiveness? How did he do that? Why did he do that? Bottom line, my question for you this morning is this. Why, when we read that story, do we think forgiveness is so difficult? Why is choosing forgiveness so difficult? On Wednesday of this week, I posed that very question on Facebook. Many of us are Facebook friends. I didn't know if I'd get any responses, quite honestly. I didn't know what the response would be. Many of you shared some great insight. I've got seven I want to put up on the screen for you. Why is choosing forgiveness so difficult? First person wrote in and said, we're human. We become cold-hearted when we can't forgive, refuse to forget. Even if it's someone that's done the unthinkable or what some deem the unforgivable, it makes us feel ugly inside and depressed. Refusing to forgive brings us down. Second person wrote in and said, I think a personal reason why it can be hard for me to forgive someone who hurt you very badly is because you're scared they're going to do it again. Anybody been there? I have. I think trust might be tied to forgiveness, this Facebook friend writes in. Third person says the hurt goes deep when it's caused by someone we trust. Replaying the offense in our mind makes the hurt come back. We just can't believe they break our trust. Until we come to terms with what's happened and accept it, there's no letting go. Fourth person wrote in and said, pride. We like to be in control of our life. It's hard to admit we need help. I've been there. Number five, for some, it comes off as weak to forgive another. They don't want to admit to themselves or to others that they've been truly hurt. They'd rather play off the hate card because in their eyes, that's the stronger role. They want to be perceived as a strong individual. Six, sometimes even as a Christ follower, we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. Both guilt and hurt are key points in forgiveness. We can forgive and let go. We allow God to finally take over completely. A hardened heart is a thing of great sadness. And then number seven, and finally, hatred, jealousy, envy, bitterness, resentment. All these things take hold when we don't forgive, and they eat a person up from the inside out. They alienate us from the ones we love. Ultimately, it can alienate us from God. Forgiveness. Why is it so hard? For some of us, I think we've bought some lies about forgiveness. I'm going to call them myths about forgiveness. Here are four myths about forgiveness. Myth number one is that forgiveness and good feelings always go hand in hand. That's not true. That's a myth. But sometimes in our mind we think, if I'm going to forgive someone, everything's going to be great. We're going to be singing kumbaya together, by the campfire, roasting marshmallows, drinking hot chocolate, and everything's going to be utopia. And that's not the case all the time. Another myth about forgiveness is that forgiveness means forgetting. 
And you haven't forgotten, so you think, I, I can't forgive. That's a myth. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean forgetting. A, a third myth about forgiveness is that forgiveness requires a long, drawn-out process and cannot take place until healing is complete. Someone might say something like this, I've been working through this forgiveness process for about five years now. I'm, I'm not quite there yet. That's a myth that it has to be a long, drawn-out process. And that has to be complete for you to truly forgive. And the number four, a fourth myth, forgiveness will always make things better. In a perfect world, that'd be the case. But some of you could testify that you've put yourself on the line and you've forgiven. And it really didn't make things better. It made you better. made your heart better. But it didn't magically change that life circumstance. I want to talk uh, finally today about what I believe is the truth about forgiveness. Um, in this big picture, this big idea that Joseph chose what many would say was the unthinkable, we can do the same thing. The first truth about forgiveness is this. Choosing forgiveness instead of revenge can be difficult and it can be painful. Re revenge, I, I think, is kind of easy. To choose revenge? I mean, the movies have kind of laid that out for us. You think about some of the movies that we might consider the greatest movies we've ever seen. Many of them are, are anchored in the, the, the quest for revenge. And when that revenge, when that justice happens, man, we cheer. The bad guy, as my 12-year-old likes to say, finally got what was coming to him. Choosing forgiveness can be difficult. It can be painful. I found an anonymous writing um, shared by a, a Ph.D. psychologist. Here's what he writes in, and he doesn't know who this came from, but he, he, he found this when speaking on this subject. He says, the moment you start to resent a person, you become their slave. They control your dreams, absorb your digestion, rob you of your peace of mind and goodwill, and take away the pleasure of your good work. They ruin your religion. They nullify your prayers. You cannot take a vacation without them going along. They destroy your freedom of mind and hound you wherever you go. There's no way to escape the person you resent. They're with you when you're awake. They invade your, they invade your privacy when you sleep. They're close beside you when you drive in your car when you're on the job. You can never have efficiency or happiness. They influence even the tone of your voice. They require you to take medication for indigestion, headaches, loss of energy. They even steal your last moment of consciousness before you go to sleep. So if you want to be a slave harborer, if you want to be a slave, harbor your resentment. Truth number two this morning. This is hard for some of us. I'll just tell you right now. It's going to rub some of you the wrong way. Unconditional forgiveness is the only correct response for Christ's followers. You may say, how could that rub someone the wrong way? I I've had people in my grill telling me I'll never forgive. Saying, Greg, you, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm going through. And I would encourage you to turn to Jesus. You can find the words of Jesus in places like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And Jesus says unconditional forgiveness is the only correct response for Christ's followers. 
In Matthew 6, right after he shared the Lord's Prayer, he said, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. In, Ma- in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, he said, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And in Matthew 18, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Like, up to seven times? And Jesus said, not seven times, but 77 times. Unconditional forgiveness is the only correct response for Christ followers. Number three, true forgiveness doesn't erase negative emotions or feelings. It, it doesn't. I wish it did. That won't always be the case. True forgiveness doesn't just do away with the negative. It's a process in moving down that road, but it doesn't just wipe it out. Number four, granting forgiveness and praying or hoping for justice are not incompatible concepts. And a lot of us struggle with this. We want to extend forgiveness, but but we want justice to be done. And those are not incompatible. When I was eight, a... um, college student in my church in Champaign was brutally murdered by three men for no apparent reason. I don't think they still really know why it took place. It was a a senseless, uh, needless crime. Just kind of a, we're going to kill you. This week, uh, when I shared on Wednesday on Facebook about forgiveness and asked for your help, this person who died, his little sister, who I haven't seen in probably two decades, wrote me a Facebook message and shared these words. She said, from a personal standpoint on forgiveness, I want to tell you a story. I struggled for years on whether I would be able to truly forgive the three men that murdered my brother. I would think I could forgive them, but I couldn't let go of the fact that I didn't want any of them to ever get out of prison. It wasn't until I talked with my pastor about it at a time when I was especially vulnerable One of the men had come up for parole, and like every year, I wanted to write to the parole board and beg them not to release this man. It made me wonder yet again if I was really forgiving if I couldn't stop writing the letters. My pastor assured me that wanting to see justice done and being able to forgive didn't have to conflict with one another. My assurance that I have indeed forgiven is that the bitterness is gone. That doesn't mean that sometimes the pain is gone. I'll always miss my brother but I don't hate anymore. And then truth number five, the most important thing I'm going to say today, all of our dealings with a person who wrongs us should focus on bringing that person into a saving relationship with God. That's called big picture Christianity. Almost three years ago on a Sunday morning, at a church kind of like this, in a suburb of St. Louis, right as the preacher was standing up to preach, kind of like this, a gunman walked in to the First Baptist Church in Maryville, Illinois, and shot and killed Pastor Fred Winters for no apparent reason. It stunned the world. I'll be honest, it stunned me. When someone gets up on Sunday morning, you you think about that now, maybe a little more than you used to in many ways. But what struck me the most about Fred Winter's saga was what his wife had to say about that. 
She was asked by the CBS Morning News if she had hatred in her heart for this gunman, if she hoped that he would burn into hell, if she hoped that justice would be exacted in a quick and powerful way. And here's what she said to them. I don't have any hatred or hard feelings toward him. We've been praying for him. One of the first things that my daughter said to me after this happened was, you know, I hope he comes to know and to love Jesus through all of this. We were not angry at all, and we firmly believe that he can find hope, he can find forgiveness, he can find peace through this by coming to know Jesus. And we hope and we pray that that happens for him. You got a faith like that? It's pretty incredible. That's pretty radical. Let's go back to Genesis for just a moment this morning. Uh, the rest of the story of Genesis is that um, Joseph sends his brothers back to the promised land. They get Jacob, all the family, everything. They bring it back to Egypt. They get this beautiful plot of land. And for many, many years, they, they live life like they should have lived life all alone. It's a beautiful pitch, picture of restoration. But in chapters 48 and 49, Jacob gets old and eventually he dies. And after blessing each of his sons, Joseph is now in a position where if he wants to, he can get revenge. He's had the touchy-feely, let's cry and wipe the tear away moment. But now that dad's gone, he could get his justice if he wants to. And his brothers are a little afraid. They're not sure what Joseph is going to do. And Joseph comes to them in Genesis 50. And let's put these words up on the screen. He says, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done. The saving of lives. See, what I love about Joseph is, yes, he chose forgiveness. That's incredible. But I love his worldview. I love his theology. In extending forgiveness, in moving toward restoration, he's such a big picture god fear. He says, guys, you wanted to harm me, but God's so big. God, it's all part of his story. It's all part of his plan. And can I ask you this morning, if maybe as I've preached this message, it's hit just a little too close to home. Maybe a, a, a face comes to mind. Maybe a life circumstance comes to mind. Maybe a life situation that's unfolding even right now comes to mind. Maybe, just maybe, can we learn something from Joseph and his big picture faith? That when we forgive, when we move toward reconciliation, when we move toward restoration, we're not being weak. We're being strong in the Lord. This service has been a little different than most services that we have here. And it's going to get even more different in just a moment. In just a moment, uh, Adam, not Adam, Jim and Ethan are going to come. And they're going to play for us during our commitment time. And we're not asking you to sing this morning, but we are asking you to respond. As you came in this morning, you were given a bulletin. Grab those right now. And in each bulletin was just a blank piece of paper. 
If you didn't get one for some reason, we've got paper in the pews in front of you. This morning, as the song is being played, as Jim is singing, I don't want you to sing, even though you'll probably know the words of the song. I want you to pray. I want you to ponder. I want you to think. And if you're holding on to something this morning, I invite you to write a name on that piece of paper or to write a life circumstance on that piece of paper or to write a situation from your past on that piece of paper. Sometimes just by writing it down, we're moving toward forgiveness. Maybe you need to forgive someone. Maybe you need to seek the forgiveness of someone. Maybe like our Facebook friend wrote, maybe you know God's forgiven you, but you need to forgive yourself. And in just a moment, this cross is going to come from the stage down to the floor. And if you want to, I invite you to do what many from our first service did. To take that piece of paper and to come forward and grab a tack and nail it to the cross. See, the cross is so appropriate because of Jesus, because of the cross, we are forgiven. We've been forgiven of our sin. What a great way to actively begin the forgiveness process in our life or in the lives of others. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And uh, sometimes we come and we laugh and uh, the message is very uplifting. And sometimes it's much more difficult. Sometimes the message hits much closer to home. And so just now, Father, we, we give these next five, six minutes to you. We cast aside any distractions that we might have. And we just focus on what your word teaches us. We focus on the call that each one of us has as Christ followers. Forgiveness is so hard. Lord, show us the way. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. If during this time you would like someone to pray for you, Adam and Ernie are up front. Ken's in the back. I'm going to be over here. We invite you. If you need prayer to come forward, we'd love to pray for you. And if you feel inclined, we invite you to take your baggage and leave it at the cross.
We're going to continue in our worship. And, uh, you may just be still dealing with something in your heart right now. And you just uh, feel like you need to come down and uh, fill out a piece of paper and nail it to the cross. And uh, that invitation is still extended. Or if you just need to have someone uh, pray with you or you just need someone to talk to, uh, that's what we're here for today. And we just want you to... Uh, join with us as we sing and you can stand if you want to stand you can sit if you want to sit you may feel like you just need to go to your knees and and uh, and just be in in prayer whatever you feel like you need to do uh, let's just bring the lights down a little bit and uh, let's just uh, come into a time of worship as we just uh, really prepare for celebrating the forgiveness that we have
never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love, your love. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out. Come to our time of communion, and, uh, and and we just want to sing about what an amazing grace. Oh 
in Romans it says while we were still sinners Christ died for us and we have this great privilege of gathering around a cross that's right in front of us and remembering what Christ did for us on on that day and we have salvation through him and this is a celebration We've kind of been going through this, Lord, forgive me, or I need to forgive this other person. But now is our time just to be able to say, thank you, God. You forgave me. And that's what this remembrance time is. It's just to remember what Christ did on that cross. Let's pray. Lord, bow, we bow before you knowing that uh, we are all sinners. We are all unworthy of the grace you have shown us. And that's what makes it so amazing. That's what makes it so much, so important to us. And I just pray, Lord, that in this time that uh, we'll just celebrate what you did in remembering the sacrifice, the broken body, and the shed blood. We just give this time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
all take together the cup. This is just a great uh, morning for us just to be able to celebrate God's forgiveness. Amen. Isn't this awesome? And uh, we are just thankful that we are able to come here, and we are so thankful of what God did for us. And so this is your opportunity right now. We're just going to pray in a moment, and the men are going to come and uh, pass the offering plates. And in response, this is a part of your act of worship. We just encourage you, if you're a, a, a member with us, you regularly attend, we want you to join in on this, in this offering. If you're a first-time guest, this is, our, this is our gift to you, and we hope that uh, you will uh, just come back and celebrate with us. And uh, at this time, let's just pray and then ask God's blessings. Father, we just bow before you again, thanking you for all that you have done for us in our lives. You are awesome to us. And we give our tithes and our offerings back to you as an act of worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How about now? Okay. As the ushers come and take the offering, I just want to kind of wrap our service up with just a couple things. Number one, um, we asked you to share. Obviously, hundreds of you wanted to and did. I want you to know no one's going to read this. Uh, This is going to be put in the garbage, quite honestly, um, done away with. So you don't need to worry about, you know, Greg and Ernie and Jim are going to be going through and writing down notes. Please don't worry about that at all. Second thing I want to let you know is that um, a sermon is great. You know, a message is great. A Sunday school lesson is great. Uh, When we talk about stuff like forgiveness, this is an ongoing deal. I, I understand that. So we've given you in your bulletin several scriptures and several quotes on on this topic, and I want to just invite you to take that with you, maybe put it in your purse, maybe carry it in your wallet, uh, maybe put it by your nightstand, and just so you can kind of keep it in front of you. Some of those quotes are incredibly, incredibly powerful. They ministered to me this week. And uh, finally, I just want to thank you for worshiping with us today. I'd like to ask everyone to stand up, please. And we're going to close our service with a word of prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you for today, and thank you for the difference that Jesus makes. It's so awesome to know that we are forgiven of the sins that we commit. We're broken, fallen people, and Jesus died for me anyway. Jesus died for us anyway. Like Jim said, that's the best news of all, a celebration time. And so we leave today with a spirit of celebration in our heart because of the difference that Jesus makes, and in his name that we pray, amen. Have a great week.